there's a lot that I'll be, I have a, I have a problem with just talking too much, talking too long, preaching too long. So I'm going to try not to be too loquacious, as they say. Um, as a church, we've been going through the book of Luke, and it's been a wonderful blessing to go through the book of Luke. Brother Kenny preached a wonderful sermon last week, just allowed the Lord to use him so much so that he preached my sermon. As a, as a teaching team, we, we have a calendar. <laughs> and so he, he preached the sermon that I was supposed to preach today, but praise God, because you did a much better job than I would have done. I only say that to say we won't be in the book of Luke today. The, the beautiful thing about allowance or somebody taking your service, you get to go wherever you want to go. And so today, I, I'm going to go wherever I want to go, but the, I feel the Lord has actually put this message on my heart because we just prayed about healing. We just prayed about God. And, and the, the beautiful thing about the text that I'm going to be coming from today are the multiple texts. I'm going to jump around. The title of this message is The Story of Three Gardens. And the beautiful thing about this text, it talks about how humanity's relationship with God ought to be or should have been. And in Genesis, we see that we were created perfect for his glory. Amen. And then we'll kind of move to another garden into a third garden. But um, I am going to just basically be talking about the gospel. And as I said, like a, as, a, as a small church and a relatively church ascension transition, I don't want to assume that people have an understanding of what the gospel is. Because oftentimes we throw the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the kingdom of God. And Luke talks about that a lot. And we can get lost and confused on what that really means. But I want to bring some clarity. And so I'll probably for the next, hopefully just 30 minutes, we'll be reiterating the same thing over and over again. I have the opportunity for the last three years to be a professor. And I'll be actually going to Portland to teach next week. And if you are a teacher in this room or a professor, one of the things you have the privilege of doing is grading papers. <laughs> it's one of the most glorious things that you can do. But the wonderful thing about grading papers is oftentimes you get those students who think they slick and they, you give them like 14, 14 things to, 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 to process through over the school year, but they just pick one thing and they just say the same thing over and over 35 different ways. Well, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the gospel 35 different ways. It's going to be the same thing over and over and over again. But it's ultimately quite important because the narrative of Jesus is about this perpetual changing that is happening in us, this perpetual work, this everlasting, this long-lasting, without an end date, chasing after us, working us. That's the gospel. The gospel narrative is this continual work, even for you who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, you still need the gospel. Um, I used to, uh, when I start, f first started doing music, I used to write these, these uh, I used to sign these contracts, and on there it would say, uh, in, in perpetuity. And I had no idea what that meant, but I was like, oh, they love me. You know, they're not going to mislead me. I'm going to sign this contract. And per well, perpetuity means forever, without a date. And in the same sense, the gospel has no end date. The gospel is doing work in perpetuity in us, from the day you have entered the, uh, uh, this world into the point to which you will leave. But oftentimes I feel we do the gospel a disservice because we start the gospel in the New Testament. 
See, and finally, we, we feel like this finally, like all of a sudden, like God didn't know what he was doing in the first part, part of it. <laughs> and he felt like, oh, you know, I have an idea. This is how I'm going to redeem my, my creation. I'm a fan of fiction and stories. And no good reader or no thoughtful reader will start a book in the middle. If you're really trying to get an understanding of what the author's intent or the theme or the plot line, you don't start in the middle. I know we all love that individual who enters into the room where we're watching a film or a TV series on Netflix, and you're like, so, what, so who is this character? What are they doing? You're like, look, bro, I ain't got time for all this. Go back, start it over, and we'll <laughs> catch up. And in the same sense, one of the things about the gospel is that we can't start or understand God's redemptive plan by just starting in Matthew. That's an incomplete understanding of the gospel. A good story has six parts. It has an exposition. It explains the, the, the narrative. It has this, uh, this moment of conflict where we see that there's tension and we got to figure out how to resolve that. But then you have this rise in action that leads to a climax. And that's usually the, the pinnacle of the story, the big part that everything is revealed. Then you have the falling uh, 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 action, and then you have a resolution. And the gospel story started at a climax is an incomplete story. And our gospel, in a lot of ways, is often incomplete because one of the problems is when we start in the, the, the New Testament, and oftentimes when we share the faith, what we're doing is preaching a, redemptive, uh, a redemption of activity and not identity. And so the problem with that is that you'll tell somebody what not to do or what to do, but you're not telling them who they are. And the reality of the gospel message is it's not just reforming activity, it's giving us an identity of who God intended us to be. And so what we see is, is the incomplete gospel, and I think there are three things that trouble us when we have this incomplete narrative of what the gospel is. is one, it has no real ontological truth, as philosophers say, an ontological, the, the nature of being. What is the nature of being? Philosophers talk about this idea of a, of a hammer being made to just make more hammers. No, the hammer is made so that it can bring glory to the creator. Like, I use this hammer to create things. It's, it's useful for me in many ways. It's not, it has multiple uses. Um, it's not just an activity reform. It's an identity reform. The other thing I think we do when we just start our gospel in the, the New Testament is when we share our faith, oftentimes what we do is we just tell people they're sinners and they need redemption. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you've sinned, have you lied before, have you stolen before? Well, then you're at odds with God and you need to come to Jesus. And oftentimes what happens is we can weaponize the gospel because what that does, it makes us moral or spiritual authorities. And we want to hurl damnation at people because it makes us feel better. But we don't preach a message of just darkness or we don't preach a message of darkness at all. We preach a message of hope. And if we believe that our greatest enemies are far removed from redemption, then we are, we are fooled. Our greatest enemy's offense is not too big for the cross's forgiveness. And the third thing I, I think, not only does it lack ontological purpose when we start our gospel in the middle, uh, we weaponize it, but our gospel is only about proactive and not being, re uh, it's not proactive, but it's only reactive. It only tells you to be defensive and not offensive. It only tells you to abstain from this, don't do this, don't do that. But the gospel, Jesus often tells people to go. 
go. He says, come, see. He tells them to be proactive, to serve these people, to do this for folks, not just to not do this, not to just not that. And so oftentimes what we're doing is we're just making people who just sit and wait for the Lord to zap them up to heaven. To abstain is not to go forth. And if it is to go forth, usually it's only in a missionary mindset to go and just talk to people about Jesus but not do good work. John Mbidi, an African philosopher and theologian, says this. He says, this is his indictment to especially European Christianity. He says, mission Christianity has come to mean for many Africans simply a set of rules to be observed. Promises to be expected in the next world, rhythmless hymns to be sung, rituals to be followed, and a few other outward things. It is a Christianity that is locked up six days a week, meeting only two hours on Sundays and perhaps once during the week. It is a Christianity which is active in a church building. The rest of the week is empty. Africans who traditionally do not know Religious vacuums feel that they don't get enough religion from this type of Christianity. Since it does not fill up their whole life, their understanding of the universe. My good brother Morgan Nick sent that quote to me because he knows I just love this idea of what does it mean for the gospel to consume every aspect of life. So that's what we're going to be talking about today is the gospel in these three gardens is our intent was to be created to worship God in every aspect of life. God created us for our, his glory and then we ruined it. The Swedish scientist and creator Alfred Nobel created, he, 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 he set in his factory, his lab, and he created dynamite. And in his creation of dynamite, he was like, this is going to be very useful for the world because it will create transportation. Because at this point in time, people were just trying to get to place to place through railroads. So if you need to, to create pathways through mountains and rocks, you would use explosives. You would use dynamites. And he was the first person to be able to create this chemical that can control explosives in the form of a dynamite. Well, what happens is human beings become human beings, and they use dynamite for other reasons. And they use it for violence and for war. And then what ended up happening is that it, the, the apocryphal story is that his brother passed away, but everybody thought it was Alfred himself who passed away. And so there was a news article or an obituary that was printed that says, the merchant of death. And he was grieved because he said, the thing in which I created lost its intent. He did not create dynamite for violence. He did not create dynamite for wicked use. And so he was grieved. I believe the story of the three gardens communicate the intended purpose of humanity's relationship with God, and they are placed in three pivotal parts in the Scriptures. The garden is very important throughout Scriptures. They're a sign of life and a sign of prosperity. Oftentimes where there is an absence of a garden, God is either judging people or He's teaching them to trust in Him. So what you see is uh, in, 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 in the Exodus, the, the, the people are wandering, and God is supplying their needs through manna. That's a, that's a way for God to get the, his people to trust in him. And then there's uh, other signs where God gets people out of very flourishing and lushful places uh, because what he's saying is, you have not treated this place properly, and therefore I am condemning you, I am judging you. 
Because oftentimes what happens is even what we see with the manna is that God gives provision, but it's not enough for us. We want more. We try to store it up because ultimately what we're saying is, God, you don't really have the best intentions for me. Like, I know what's best for me, and I need excess. And what I'm not saying is excess is wrong or having a lot is bad, but excess draws us away. Be careful that it draws you away from trusting the Lord should you lose that excess. A couple other places before we get into Genesis, the first garden, that we see, uh, you'll see the garden and its importance because where you see gardens is God showing that there's life. In Jeremiah 29, where they're in exile in Babylon, he says, go into the city and plant gardens and produce and live off the gardens. Even in the midst of your enemies, I want you to live and flourish with these gardens. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. Amen. In John 19, he says, uh, the scriptures say, there is a place in which Jesus was crucified and there was a garden. Even in Jesus' death, there is life. There's a metaphor there that even in the midst of Jesus dying, there's an intention to bring great life. In the Songs of Solomon 14, 12, amen, for those who are married here, it says that Solomon, is, he's, he's spitting game. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain, a garden that brings life. My beloved, come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Come on, somebody. Come on, Antoine. I give that to you. You can use that later on. But let's talk about the first garden, God's intention. So God, in Genesis chapter 1, what we see is the Garden of Eden. And for the sake of time, I am not going to read all of the texts in which we're going through. We're going to go through Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit, and then we're going to go in John 17, a little bit 18, and then Revelations. But in Genesis 1, we see in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and then the sixth day. And in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So what we see here is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. From nothing, God produces life. Then what we see is that God creates us for his glory. When you look at the word create, bara, it says that he, in the Hebrew, it says that he shapes us, that he forms us, that he selects us, that he chooses us. Understand from the foundation of the earth, God chooses and selects us. And sometimes we have a theology that teaches us that we're wretched and we're bad and we're worthless people. That's not the theology that I hold to. Now, I know we're sinners and we fall short of the glory of God, but God didn't create us for the purposes of being wretched, terrible, ratchet individuals. You were made in his glory, in his image to be good. And he says, he affirms that the greatest thing the scriptures can do is that God who created you from nothing to say that you are a blessing. You are a benefit to the world. That's what it means to be very good. 
that you are good, you aren't a mess. The other thing we see is that he blesses it, that creation, humanity, everything was to be a blessing as unto a blessing. So it's double blessing, a benefit is to not only bless yourself or bless God, but to bless others. But then the last thing we see, and I know we struggle with in this room, is that God rests. Because it is holy. It's a holy thing to do. And rest isn't just, as I've learned, Shabbat, Sabbath. It's not just to not do anything. It's also to celebrate, to take time as you work, as you grind, to sit back and let's celebrate God. This is the reason why we come here today and we, we've worked our tails off six days a week. And today is our Shabbat, our rest, our acknowledgement that God, who is holy, has provided for us. To take a time to say, you know what, I know that I don't have to worry about today's manna because the Lord will provide. So in the garden, what we see is we worship God. We also see in the garden is that we create, that God creates and that he called us to create, but that he also blesses it in the garden. But not only that is that we rest and we celebrate. But one of the tensions is, is that once again, just as Alfred Nobel's creation was misused, the human problem enters into the garden. And we enter with selfishness and a scarcity mindset. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that there isn't enough spiritual or social resources in their condition to be satisfied in the glory of God. But the most ironic thing is that Satan convinces Adam and Eve that they don't or that they're deficient in the very thing that God gave them abundance of, which is dignity. God gives them an abundance because he says, you are my creation. You fellowship with me. You are mine. I am walking with you. But for some reason, we believe that we're still deficient. The most ironic thing is that we struggle with that today. The Lord provides us with a nice home, but we want a bigger home. The Lord provides us with a vehicle, but we want another vehicle. Lord, thank you for that, that Honda, but you know, that Tesla, though, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Amen. God provides us with a job, but we want more job or a different job. Our contract that we signed with Satan is that there's an agreement that God is negligent in his provision. Scarcity will have you playing God and with also, also withholding the very blessings that belong to other people. Think about war, scarcity, and selfishness. Think about racism, scarcity, and selfishness. Gang violence, embezzlement, and, and, and confidence schemes, selfishness, and scarcity. We believe that we inherently de deserve more material goods and dignity than our neighbor. And when we see what they have, we look at that and we say, mine. Because Satan basically convinces that. He says this in, in Genesis. He says, and two, he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He said, it is not true that you will surely die. So basically he's saying, did God say that you, that you can't have these things? It's, it's all right, take that. And if you do, you won't die. And the reality of it is, is, Death is a very sneaky, subversive term in here. Yeah, they didn't die immediately, but they began to, one, die a slow death physically, but ultimately there was a greater death that they were separated from God and that they no longer had perfect fellowship with God. And I, and I struggle because oftentimes I think we 
operate in this darkness. We operate in this slow death. Yes, some of us in here and folks listening on the live stream, we may not be in complete darkness, but some of us are wandering in the light with our eyes closed. And we're walking and we're just thinking we're good. And eventually you're going to stumble and fall. And I know this because I have been in that place for nearly two years. If I can just be really clear, if I, the, the tension is, is you can talk about God and you can say good things about God, but be so far from him because you perform well. We see that, and I've mentioned this before, in a rich young ruler, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've done all some, some things publicly that looks good, but inwardly my heart is far from him. And so what does it look like for you to say, you know what, not only do I want to, to, to have a moral life, but I want to know the Lord because ultimately what we end up doing is, is like, well, it's not hurting anybody. I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody, the things that I'm doing. But what happened to righteousness? What happened to just loving God for who he is? For holiness, for dying to the flesh. The thing which I created is no longer bringing glory to God. We are seeking to glorify ourselves. And we, we figure out how to rationalize it through our intellect. And G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite philosophers and Christian thinkers, says this. We all disapprove of prostitution. But we do not all approve of purity. The only way to discuss social evils is to get at once to the social ideal. We can all see the national madness. Amen. <laughs> this is written <laughs> hundreds of years ago or about 100 years ago. But what is national sanity? What is wrong is that we do not ask what is right. Did God really say that you can't eat from the tree in the garden? That's the lie we've been told. What is wrong is we do not ask what is right. In the garden, there's a lack. Now what's happened is there's a lack of worship. There's creating through selfishness. There's no longer blessing but curse, and we do not rest. We do not worship God properly. And so as we look through this exposition, this conflict, this rise in action, this climax, fall in action, and resolution, what you see is, okay, now there's conflict. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a punishment in the garden, and so now what we have is humanity. The conflict is humanity is at odds with God. The gospel message is, is that God is perfect, and there has to be a punishment for sin. Amen? There has to be a punishment for sin. How do we preach a gospel to a society who does not believe there's sin? Let me tell you that sin is real, disobedience is real, and that God's wrath is real. And when we're talking about justification, when we're talking about salvation, we have to know that you played a part in the wretchedness of putting Christ on the cross. And so, therefore, there has to be redemption. And so, this rising action is, how can we get people to fellowship with God again? So, there's the law. The law fails. There are prophets. The prophets aren't good enough, right? There's all these different things that God is, is giving people the opportunity to prove your righteousness. Show me you're righteous enough to fellowship with me. And guess what? We consistently fail. And then we're going to move to this second garden. This second garden is the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're going to jump to John 17. This is the climax in the Bible narrative, I believe. And what we have is Jesus has entered the picture, 
and that there's, he's done all these miracles. He's preached the good news. Humanity knows that they can't achieve righteousness on their own. So here comes God saying, I will come down to, to earth and I will die myself for wretched people who can't pay the penalty of sin. And so in John 17, as our sister Precious read, we see a few things. We see after Yeshua said these things, he looked up towards heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. The first thing you see here is that he's returning to the first garden by looking up to heaven, acknowledging God and worshiping God. If you are a Christian and you never look up to God, you're not a Christian, you're a humanist. You believe that you have all the power. And so ultimately the Christian is to know like when I am in a place of deficit, and struggle, I am to look up to heaven and say, Father, I need you. And so what we have in verse 1 is a return to the first garden. Hey, God, you in the beginning, you created all things. This is your plan. Also, he says, glorify your son that I may glorify you. Going back to the original intent of humanity, I am to glorify you. That's the reason why we're here is to glorify you. In verse 3, he communicates the ultimate purpose. He says, And eternal life is this, to know you, the one true God, and him who sent you, Yahshua the Messiah. And so he sees reestablishing, going back to the the first garden, saying, all right, I look up to heaven, I worship you, and the goal is to get people to know you because this is eternal life. This is what was intended in the beginning for us to have perfect relationship with you. There was no death. And now, Lord, I am here to reestablish that relationship. You shall surely die, but now you have eternal life. In verse 14, he says, I've given them the word. He says, I have given them your word, and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world. And just as myself do not belong to the world. And so once again, return to the first garden. Satan said that you do not have all you need in Genesis. And Jesus is answering that challenge saying, yes, you do. His word is sufficient for you. In verse 15, he says, don't take them out the world, returning to the first garden. He said, Lord, don't kick them out. Return. He says, I will sanctify them. Rather than kicking them out, I will set them apart in the chaos. Because in verse 18, he's saying this. He says, just as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Lord, don't kick them out of the chaos. Allow them to live there and sanctify themselves so they will be people who live righteously and know how to cultivate and to do things unto your glory. But once again, as he blessed it in the first garden, what we see here is Jesus giving affirmation and blessing in verse 23. I united with them and you with me so that you may be completely one and the world thus realize that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. The Father is confirming the goodness in Jesus' work. So in Mark 26, 36 to uh, 45, and then also in Mark 14, as we see a similar prayer as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. And he's saying like, Lord, I am here to reestablish the institution or the economy in which ways in which we were to exist in the first garden. As Jesus is also called the second Adam, amen? So he's here to restore the relationship that went wrong in Genesis. Jesus' sole agenda is to get his father's creation to worship him again, 
to understand why they were shaped, why they were formed, and why they were chosen. The first garden, we find perfection, but for some reason that perfection wasn't good enough for us. In the second garden, we find a perfect Savior, but for some, this perfect Savior isn't good enough for us. And therefore, there is sadness and there is betrayal. And even Jesus, in, it says in Mark 16 or Mark 26 or Matthew 26 and Mark 14, when he's praying the same prayer in John, he's saying, Lord, remove this cup from me. He's grieving, he's in pain, but the beautiful thing is he doesn't give in to the, sacri- the, the selfishness and the scarcity that human beings fell into in Genesis. He recognizes that, no, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the blueprint for the Christian life. The first garden is gone. There is no utopia, people of God. Through your laws, through your work, you're not going to create a utopia. That is only in Eden. We are more like a people who live in a Garden of Gethsemane where there's distrust, where there's betrayal, where there's pain. But Jesus gives us the perfect picture on how to exist in the Garden of Gethsemane where there is distrust, pain. And that is a life that is full of sacrifice and love. Because yet and still, there are people who are going to betray him. There are people who are going to lie on him. But yet and still, he goes to the cross for those folks. So let me ask you, how are you going to the cross in your daily life for your neighbor in this garden in which we live in? Because the Christian life isn't about living perfectly. I know oftentimes we, we let shame wear us down and we want to be perfect. And the Bible does say be perfect for uh, God is perfect. But that is perfection through b- belief and trusting in Jesus Christ and that he is going to continually, perpetually work through us. But the Christian life is about knowing the Father, knowing ourselves, and worshiping in every aspect of life, giving Jesus lordship over everything. We talk about being Lord and Savior. We want Jesus to, to die and to sacrifice for us, but we don't want to give him dominion of things. If you give Jesus just a little bit of space in your house, he's going to take over. I used to watch Martin. You remember bro, man from the fifth floor come through? He said, I ate your sandwich, bro. You see, that's Jesus. Jesus comes in. He's gonna, he wants everything. He just doesn't want the, the foyer. He just doesn't want the living room. He said, I want, I want what's in that bedroom as well. I want, the, I want the closet. You're like, no, Jesus, I don't know about that closet. There's some things in that closet. But Jesus wants that. And he wants, to, he wants to, you to surrender all things. And so as we talk about what does it look like to return to the garden, it's, it's not going to be perfection. What it is is a daily surrendering. This is why he says, take up your cross daily. It is a Dying daily, it is a daily sacrifice. What does it look like for you in this building and you listen online to die daily to your own agenda when you're constantly wanting to say, Lord, take this cup from me. Let this pass. And you know what? Not my will be done, but your will. So back to this six parts of the story. The exposition is, is God created us and it was very good. The conflict is, is we determined that the resources that God provided were not enough and we violated the covenant. The rise in action is that God allowed chaos and death to have its way in a world and humanity is busy trying to create solutions. However, our heroes and our means are insufficient. The climax is, but wait, (laughs) there is one who is not only good enough to defeat chaos and death, he does defeat chaos and death. 
And then now what you see is this falling action, now that we've hit the climax in the movie, or in the narrative, is that Jesus is empowering his followers to endure the chaos and death and bring restoration to humanity. But there's still a resolution. As the French people say in a fancy way, there's still a denouement. There's an untying of the knot. There's, there's, there's a last little part that the church, that the people of God should be extremely excited about. And we talked about the first garden where things were perfect and we failed and now there's corruption. We talked about Jesus entering into a second garden and offering forgiveness and love and a, and a new trajectory. But there's a third garden, amen, in Revelation. In Revelation 21 and 22, what we find is that there's a second conflict, almost climax and resolution within the final resolution of the, of the crucifixion. The heavenly council has gotten together and they're like, okay, we've let Satan run around enough, but it's time to end his reign. Death and Sheol will be hurled into the fiery pits or the fiery lake. And since we ruined the first earth, what we see here is that God is creating a new heavens and a new earth. He says that then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the old heaven and the new heaven, or for the old heaven and the new earth had passed away, and the sea was no longer there. And also I saw a holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then in verse 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And in verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for it is the temple, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, or Adonai, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then in Revelation 22, 22, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water, bright as crystal. Notice this is Rev, uh, Revelation 22, 1, I'm sorry. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit from each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God, of the Lamb, will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In the first garden, what we see is humanity hid from God because of shame. In the second garden, Jesus had to die for humanity so that God could dwell with us. In the third garden, what we see is God dwell with us face to face. In the first garden, what we see is that God puts man to sleep for productivity and worship. But in the second garden, what we see is that man fell asleep when Jesus is trying to pray, and he's concerned. He's like, why can't you guys stay awake? But Jesus says, there's no need to worry or sleep anymore because in the third garden, I'll give you eternal rest. 
In the first garden, what we see is that we were convinced that we did not need to worship. In the second garden, Jesus died in order to establish and empower the church. In the third garden, what we see is there's no need for a temple because Adonai will be our temple. In the first garden, there is light that came from heaven and the moon. And in the new garden, it says there'll be no need for a light before he will be our light that we consume. In the first garden, we were promised pain and fear and death. In the second garden, Jesus even asked uh, to remove that cup. But in the third garden, he will wipe away every single tear. Amen? But in the first garden, we were promised death for our disobedience. In the second garden, Jesus takes on that punishment. And in the third garden, there is no death. But here's the beautiful part. In the first garden, there was a tree from which we have to abstain or stay away from. In the second garden, there was a tree on which Jesus died on to bring redemption. But in the third garden, there is a tree for which there is leaves. It says that the tree heals the nation. No longer will there be any curses. And blessed are those who have a right to eat from the tree of life. The good news is chasing after us even when we run from it. So do you know God? And this is going to be a very simple, very simple call. We are people who were made in God's image. We decided that that was not sufficient. We ran astray from God. And God says there is a penalty for that. And if you think that you can handle that penalty, then go for it. But I am going to provide an escape for you who understand that you do not have the power, the spiritual resources to, to come against my wrath. And he gives his son as an offering. And for those in this building who may not know Jesus, who have not come to a place to really truly know, like, do I know him? Do I have eternal life? Do I realize that my sins have created a gap between me and my father, I ask that you would come to know Jesus at this moment. You can talk to me afterwards. You could talk to one of the brothers who was in front. You could talk to Precious. Because ultimately what we do here is not just to put on a good show. Ultimately what we do here is not to just have a good dinner afterwards or, or have amazing people come and display their talents. What we do here is for people to know God, to come to a saving knowledge of God. And not just come to a saving knowledge of God, but to come to a place where you understand that every area of life is an aspect that God wants control of and worships. And so some of us in here may know God. We may love God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. But the tension is, is we have yet to truly submit things unto him. So I challenge us in this room, like, what is it that you have kept away from Jesus? What is it that you have kept away from the Father? The good news is that Jesus wants to not only be Savior, he not only wants to die for your sins, he wants to be Lord of your life because he believes and knows what is best for you. A beautiful ending to chapter 22 in Revelation is this. It says, the Spirit and the bride says, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who thirsts Come, and let the one who desires take water of life without price. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all.
Amen. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.